0: To help you with this, I'll announce times, frequencies, and website addresses at the conclusion of each series of stories. At the website for this show, that's outfarpress.com, you can listen to the past five shortwave reports, find advice for listening to Shortwave at home, and find internet links for global news sources. Please check it out and tell a friend. In today's edition, you'll hear reports from Afshin Rattansi's Going Underground, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, France 24, and NHK Japan. We will begin with Afshin Rattansi's Going Underground. Afshin interviewed Dr. Anas Ahaji, a scholar and partner at Energy Outlook Advisors in Texas. They spoke about whether oil sanctions work or merely harm people in the affected countries. Was Seymour Hersh correct in blaming the U.S. for blowing up the Nord Stream pipeline? Has global oil distribution changed other than who delivers the product to which country? Is the oil price cap merely propaganda? Going underground. This week,
1: we ask, do oil sanctions work or merely kill people in the countries doing the sanctioning? The Biden administration continues to deny Seymour Hersh's report that it blew up Europe's pipelines, destabilizing global energy markets and creating the largest man-made single fossil fuel emission event. Oil sanctions, meanwhile, on Russia are routinely assumed by NATO nation media to be an appropriate response to what has been happening in Ukraine. One analyst who believes the war in Europe signals a new order in global energy markets and politics is the current managing partner of the advisory firm Energy Outlook Advisors. Award-winning scholar Anas Alhaji, former chief economist at NGP Energy Capital Management, joins me now from Texas. Thank you so much, Anas, for uh, coming on. Before we get to that new order uh, in global energy markets, I better just uh, begin with asking you why you tweeted the EU is doomed if pipelines uh, effectively like Nord Stream start getting attacked uh, all the time. They become the norm uh, after what happened and what Cy Hirsch claims was a effectively a Biden, Blinken, Sullivan, Newland attack.
2: Sure. If you look around the world, uh, what you see is, and whether you see this in uh, old days in Colombia, or you see it in Nigeria, you see it in Yemen, everyone who gets mad, basically, they attack the pipelines. And once it starts, basically, every group that uh, wants something, they start, they look at Iraq, for example, too, uh, they will start attacking uh, oil facilities. And uh, by uh, whoever attacked that pipeline, basically, Uh, They just opened a can of worm, in this case, where they are telling everyone, look, you can do that. You can literally do a copycat for whatever reason you want. And that was the fear at that time, that most of Europe basically is under the reach of Russia. If Russia wants to retaliate, at the same time, there are other countries involved and they have interest too. Uh, We already have seen several countries expressing their interest in either piping the gas to Europe or sending it uh, through LNG uh, or various methods.
1: From, from the US, that would be. But th- that doesn't explain why there seems to be a kind of radio silence in NATO nation media, even about the investigations. Uh, the German, uh, the Swedish and the Danish uh, investigation teams haven't gone public. They've said they've investigated and they, they haven't said who did it. I mean, are the energy traders not interested in it? Because clearly it had an impact on the energy markets, let alone the environment.
2: Absolutely. So from my point of view, I don't have any private information at all. I know Seymour Hersh basically done a lot of work on this. I'm going to speak uh, from a pure theoretical point of view when we talk about energy security. And it is very clear that Russia does not have an interest in this. And the US especially the Biden administration has no interest either. So I was really surprised when I read the uh, report by uh, Simon Hirsch uh, simply because it was very clear that the Biden administration was trying to make every single effort to supply Europe with enough energy for the winter. And they got lucky. And they got lucky on two fronts. They got lucky because of the mild winter and they got lucky because of the Uh, uh, No uh, or lack of hurricanes, or damaging hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico, where all the LNG basically is made, and all the ships basically leave the Gulf of Mexico to Europe. So they got lucky. But without that, Europe would have been in big trouble. So the issue is, we've seen the efforts by the administration to supply Europe with energy, to the extent that they ignored all the human rights issues in Iran, all the human rights issues in Venezuela, all the sanctions on those two countries, and they literally give exemptions to certain companies to ship the oil from those countries to Europe. So the idea here is very clear that the Biden administration wants to secure energy supplies in Europe, and it's not in its interest to bomb the gas pipelines before the winter. We've seen a switch, a complete switch independence Uh, from Russian gas to American gas. Russian gas was piped, was way cheaper, was long-term contracts, while the US LNG is way more expensive and way more uh, dangerous in a sense when it comes to energy security, simply because uh, as we've seen with the fire at the uh, Freeport, Uh, We end up with some problems, technical problems. And if we end up with hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico, where Europe is going to get the gas from? All we did, and this is, again, one of the main results of the conflict, is we have changes in the direction of trade in energy sources, mainly oil and gas and coal. And it's a musical chairs, period. That's what the sanctions did. It's a musical share. We, we diverted the Russian gas to Asia, we send the American gas to Europe, we diverted the uh, oil from Europe to Asia and the Middle East and Africa, and then the Middle East and Africa start sending oil to Europe. So, yes, people who think, well, Europe secured, well, it's secured through various measures. One of them is musical shares. And if we have a massive growth in China and the Chinese start competing for the available LNG, we might see record prices again. And can the Europeans afford that? The other issue is that because the sanctions really never worked historically and they don't work, it's becoming sort of a joke that you ban yourself from the cheap Russian oil and then your foe, China, takes the cheap oil refine it, then send you the gasoline and diesel at world prices. This is just a joke. We do have a serious problem because since 2017, we've seen data deterioration in the oil and dust. And what we see now as one of the main results of this conflict is that we have a very large fleet of tankers that's going dark, we'll call them ghost ships. No one can track them, but they have oil And the Russians, basically, along with the Iranians and the Venezuelans, basically perfected the game. And what we have right now as a result of the conflict is the largest black market ever in the history of the oil industry in oil. What that means is we already have data deterioration since 2017, and now the data got really, really worse. To give you an example, we've seen this with Iran. They were reporting that Iranians were exporting 400,000 barrels a day. We know for a fact through various means and other means, some of it is direct information that they were uh, exporting about 800 and 900, so double. One of the main lessons we learned from this experience here is that sanctions never work. What they do is they cause a lot of pain to both sides of the conflict, but they don't work. They don't achieve the objectives. Putin has not changed his stand, period. That's number one, but they cause a lot of pain. And if your objective is just to cause pain, yes, it is successful. But the pain is for both sides, not only them. As for the price cap, the price cap is literally a joke. And the news that's been published saying that Russian revenues declined because of the price cap does not make any sense and I'll tell you why. The price cap was implemented on the fifth and does not apply to all the tankers that left at that time. So all the tankers at sea, basically at that time, they, they, they are off that hook. And for, for the revenues to become taxable and the government receive those revenues, it takes months. Sometimes it takes six six months, seven months, sometimes nine months. And all of a sudden, two weeks, the money has not even been received yet. And Janet Yellen is saying, oh, their revenues went down because of the price cap. Well, they haven't received the money to, for revenues even to decline. So you can see that it was pure pure propaganda trying
1: to market the price cap. Dr. Anas Alhaji, thank you.
0: That excerpted interview with Dr. Anas Alhaji was by Afshin Ratansi from his weekly program called Going Underground. You can find the complete interview at the Canadian-based streaming service called Rumble.com. They have also posted archived interviews Afton did with John Pilger, Noam Chomsky, Vandana Shiva, and many others. Search for Going Underground TV on Rumble.com. Next, Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle. The Russian Foreign Minister Lavrov toured Latin America to strengthen alliances, develop trade and counter Western influence. Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle.
3: Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov is touring Latin America to strengthen alliances as Moscow wages its war in Ukraine. Russia is being sanctioned and isolated by the US and EU over its invasion and is looking to counter Western influence. Lavrov's multinational tour includes visits to Brazil, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba.
4: Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, on a diplomatic push in Latin America. He met with Nicaragua's president, Daniel Ortega, a vocal supporter of Moscow's invasion of Ukraine. Russia and Nicaragua are key allies and are both under Western-imposed sanctions. Lavrov touted a multipolar world order and denounced the West's sphere of influence.
3: Attempts by the West to establish hegemony, to dictate to everyone and everything anywhere in the world, can be seen in what is happening around Ukraine now, and in NATO's claim of having the role of a global security guarantor, including in the
4: Asia-Pacific and a number of other regions around the world.
2: In
4: In Venezuela, Lavrov held talks with President Nicolas Maduro, another leader looking to counter the West. Plans to expand energy, investment and trade agreements were announced.
3: We have a very rich agenda with Venezuela. Many practical projects are being implemented. We discussed this in detail today and told you about it. And this cooperation actually contributes to strengthening the foundations of an independent national economy, not dependent on whims and blackmail from our Western colleagues.
4: Lavrov stressed that both nations are committed to implementing the United Nations Charter's principles of sovereign equality and non-interference in world affairs. After his tour, Lavrov will head to New York to chair a UN Security Council meeting.
0: That report was from Germany's Radio Deutsche Welle, which may be heard at a combined audio-video website DW.com, as well as on YouTube at their channels called DW News and DW Documentary. My health concerns have continued. I'm still recovering from spinal surgery five weeks ago, and I truly appreciate your well wishes. Hopefully my energy will increase soon. Bear with me, please. On to France 24. More on the Russian foreign minister's visit to Brazil, where President Lula da Silva said the U.S. and E.U. needed to stop encouraging war and start creating peace. Lula went on to suggest the creation of a G20 for peace in Ukraine and that he would help mediate a settlement. A just-released European State of the Climate report says that the region had its hottest summer on record in 2022 and that regional temperatures are rising at twice the global average. Germany finally shut down the last of its nuclear power plants, France 24.
3: All smiles in Brasilia, as Russia's foreign minister was welcomed by his Brazilian counterpart Monday. Beyond talks on energy and trade, Sergei Lavrov was particularly appreciative of his host's take on Russia's war in Ukraine.
5: We are grateful to our Brazilian friends for their excellent understanding of the genesis of the situation. We are grateful for the desire to contribute to the search for ways to resolve it.
3: The Brazilian stance, though, has not been met with such acceptance in other diplomatic circles. 14 months into a Russian invasion that has brought indiscriminate attacks on civilians and illegal annexations of Ukrainian territory, President Lula da Silva last week appeared to lay the blame not with the Kremlin, but with the U.S. and Europe for helping to support Ukraine's defense.
6: The United States needs to stop encouraging war and start talking about peace. The European Union needs to start talking about peace.
3: Those comments quickly drew the ire of Washington as White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby accused Lula of parroting Russian and Chinese propaganda. Brazil's foreign minister pushed back on that criticism Monday night. No, in no way do I agree. I don't know how or why he reached that conclusion, but I don't agree. While refusing to join Western sanctions on Russia, Lula has called for a multinational mediation group to help end the conflict. Kyiv says peace will only be possible when Russia withdraws its forces from all Ukrainian territory.
7: The creation of a G20 for peace in Ukraine. It's an initiative put forward by Brazil's president. On a trip to Abu Dhabi to visit Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed, Lula da Silva presented himself as a mediator in the conflict.
1: Yesterday I talked to the Sheikh about the war. I talked to Xi Jinping about the war. I think we are finding a set of people who would rather talk peace than war. I think it's going to work out.
7: Before visiting the United Arab Emirates, Lula was in China, where Ukraine was also on the agenda. The Brazilian president has been known to say Moscow and Kiev bear equal responsibility for the war. And with that, he's not hesitated to criticise the United States and the European Union for their military support of Ukraine.
1: The United States needs to stop encouraging war and start talking about peace. The European Union needs to start talking about peace so that we can convince Putin and Zelensky that peace is in the interest of the whole world.
7: His aim is to form a group of countries that have so far stayed neutral in the conflict to broker peace between Russia and Ukraine. But Brazil has a privileged relationship with Russia as a fellow BRICS nation, a partnership that also includes China, India and South Africa, who have all stopped short of condemning Russia's invasion. Earlier this month, Lula even suggested Ukraine should give up the Crimean Peninsula, which was illegally annexed by Russia in 2014.
8: For anyone living in Europe last year, the latest European state of the climate report will come as no great surprise. According to the study, the continent experienced its hottest summer on record in 2022 and its second warmest year ever. The report also reveals that temperatures across Europe are rising at twice the global average with the region having experienced 2.2 degrees Celsius of warming since pre-industrial times. So this combination of heat waves and much warmer than average conditions across the year leads to increased heat stress. And we know from our data that the, the heat stress that European citizens were under in 2022 was the highest that they'd ever been under. These high temperatures, combined with low rainfall, also resulted in widespread drought throughout the year, while summer wildfires caused record levels of carbon emissions. The level of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere for uh, 2022 was the the highest that there has ever been. So we have ice core records and other paleoclimate records that go back for um, Antarctic and uh, for hundreds of thousands of years, so we we really know empirically that the greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere are the highest they've been in an incredibly long time. The effects were felt everywhere, even in colder areas. According to the report, the Alps lost more than five cubic kilometres of ice. Meanwhile, exceptional September heat waves across Greenland resulted in record-breaking ice sheet melt there as well. The world is moving towards an El Nino weather pattern, which could further drive up global temperatures.
5: These nuclear plants were to be shut down before, but the war in Ukraine changed all that. And believe it or not, it was actually the Green Party vice chancellor who announced their temporary life extension until today. The fear was last summer when the war in Ukraine uh, was going on uh, that the energy supplies of Germany would be challenged, there would be um, a severe crisis for electricity and heating during the winter. Uh, We've got through the winter, we're in spring now, and so it's been decided to stick to that schedule and shut down to these, uh, to shut down these nuclear plants, despite some opposition of course from the the actual opposition parties who are saying that uh, this is insane, we'll never be able to make that energy transition entirely to renewables. It will mean we'll have to use more coal, which is of course, Uh, vastly polluting and even the finance minister who is in the coalition government from the Free Democratic Party has said that this would be uh, a bad idea.
3: And Nick, talk to us a little bit about the history of nuclear energy in Germany.
5: It started really in 1961 with the opening of the first reactor and uh, to the skepticism of energy supply companies. And then it grew until in the 1990s, there were some 17 nuclear reactors. But this whole journey came through a lot of controversy. There was opposition, particularly after the Three Mile Island incident in 1976 in Chernobyl. You can imagine how that focused uh, attention here in Germany and the whole process of contesting nuclear power. Gave birth to Europe's biggest green party and green party movement. The people who are in government now. And then, what really, really tipped uh, the hand of government here was the Fukushima nuclear disaster. Uh, in uh, under Angela Merkel's reign, she decided in 2011 that it was time to shut down all of Germany's nuclear plants uh, by the 2030s. However, that whole schedule uh, was was advanced when this new coalition government came into power. Uh, Germany is now, in the past year, only generating about 6% of its electricity from nuclear power. In the past three months, it's been around 3%. Even if these nuclear plants are being shut down, the controversy will continue because you have to decommission these plants. That takes 15 years and store tens of thousands of tons of nuclear waste somewhere. So there'll be a lot more discussion, even though the era of nuclear energy in Germany is over. Those
0: reports were from France 24. France 24 may be easily found at their website, france24.com, as well as a YouTube channel called France 24 English and most major podcast sites. If you have questions or comments about the shortwave report or could assist me by supporting this listener-funded program, I may be reached through the website and PayPal or by writing to Dan Roberts at P.O. Box 1162. Willits California 95490. Please help me continue producing this weekly show which I freely distribute to radio stations and the internet. Many many thanks to everyone who's contributed most recently from Willits and Eureka California and Littleton Colorado. Many many thanks. We will conclude with NHK Japan. At the G7 summit in Japan, foreign ministers agreed on Japanese military expansion and who the enemies are, namely China, Russia, and North Korea. The U.S. sent a warship through the Taiwan Strait as a warning to China. NHK Japan
6: Foreign ministers of the Group of Seven Nations have wrapped up a third day of talks in central Japan. They released a joint statement committing to uphold an international order based on the rule of law and highlighted countries challenging it. Japan's Hayashi Yoshimasa said he and his counterparts discussed a range of topics from the war in Ukraine to maintaining peace in the Taiwan Strait. He said the G7 ministers welcomed Japan's proposals working toward a world free of nuclear weapons as well as Beijing's apparent moves to boost its arsenal.
1: The G7 shared concerns about China's expansion of its nuclear capabilities and confirmed the importance of transparency.
6: The joint statement affirms the G7 will oppose any attempt to unilaterally challenge the status quo. Hashi also acknowledged Japan continues to see worrying activity from some of its neighbors.
1: North Korea has been escalating its actions by launching ballistic missiles in an unprecedented frequency. Furthermore, Moscow continues to conduct military activities in the Far East region, and China is also strengthening its military cooperation with Russia.
6: The statement strongly condemns Russia's continuing invasion of Ukraine and calls for the immediate and unconditional withdrawal of all troops. Now, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken also spoke to the media after the meeting. He stressed the group will remain united in dealing with China and Taiwan. Blinken's comments come amid concerns the G7 nations do not see eye to eye on Taiwan. Representatives from the EU, France and Germany have visited Beijing in recent weeks. Blinken said the g 7 stance has not changed.
3: We're united in making clear to Beijing our opposition to unilateral changes to the status quo with Taiwan. We're also equally committed, individually and collectively, to constructively engaging with Beijing if it chooses to contribute its efforts to efforts to address shared global challenges.
6: His remarks come after days of international controversy sparked by French President Emmanuel Macron. After visiting China earlier this month, he said Europe should distance itself from the U.S.-China rivalry over Taiwan. Now, Blinken also reaffirmed the G7's commitment to Ukraine as it prepares to launch a major counteroffensive. Conversations are expected to continue when world leaders meet at the G7 summit in Hiroshima next month. The United States says it sent a warship through the Taiwan Strait on Sunday. It came less than a week after China conducted a series of military exercises in the area. The U.S. Navy's 7th Fleet said the destroyer USS Milius conducted a routine Taiwan Strait transit in accordance with international law. It added the transit demonstrates the U.S. commitment to a free and open Indo-Pacific. China says it monitored all the actions of the U.S. fleet and was on alert. It warned the U.S., saying China will firmly protect its sovereignty and security, as well as the peace and stability of the region. A Chinese foreign ministry spokesperson indicated its recent military drills were in retaliation for the meeting earlier this month between Taiwan's President Tsai Ing-wen and U.S. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy.
0: Those reports were from NHK World Radio Japan, now heard from 9.30 to 10 p.m. at 9865 or on the web at www3.nhk.or.jp. They also have podcasts up at most sites. All the times I announce are for Pacific Daylight Saving Time, so please adjust them to your time zone. One of my goals in producing this show is to encourage people to listen to international broadcasts, get a global perspective. You will have to look harder these days because of U.S. and EU prohibitions on media. Every Thursday evening, I post a new shortwave report at the website for this show. That's outfarpress.com. At my website, you can also listen to past shows, please consider making a safe donation online through PayPal. There's a link at my website along with the podcast link and get advice for listening at home. The shortwave report, which is now in its 27th year of production, remains free to rebroadcast upon notification. The shortwave report is produced and distributed off the electrical grid in Northern California using solar panels. I'm your host and producer, Dan Roberts.